to have quite a conversation today. We're going to talk about Lincoln the Tyrant, question mark. One of the things that if you work in this field for any period of time, you will run across those who, you know, they'll, they idolize Lincoln. He's perfection. He isn't all that good. He didn't do enough about slavery. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't pure enough. And so forth and so on, but there is this crowd that really just despises him. Like they, they, they call him a tyrant. I've heard Lincoln compared to Hitler and Pol Pot, and you know, really sort of nonsensical stuff. So we thought that it would be good today to have a conversation about who Lincoln and his political party really were in the 1850s, because probably the one thing that I've heard, I mean, it, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times is that he didn't care about slavery, you know, that he didn't care about black people, etc., which is all just completely false on the surface. So we thought it would be good today to talk about um, Lincoln and the party, but really in three primary categories, which is his introduction to the national stage through his Peoria speech in 1854, and then talk a little bit about something most everyone's heard of, the, the debates with Stephen Douglas in, in 1857. And then the last one, which I know I find fascinating, and a lot of people really aren't that familiar with, is his Cooper Union address in 1859. So I'm joined today by Sheila Mulliken. She has worked for the, for the trust for, I mean, goodness, now what, five Almost or six years. years, six years, five years, six years? Long time. And we're going to talk a little bit about Lincoln. So the floor is yours. Let's talk about the Peoria speech and the old rail splitter and the tyrant known I, as yeah. Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln inspires strong feeling. I mean, he permeates the culture. We have him on two of our most commonly used uh, <clears throat> denominations of currency. He made a little cameo in the Top Gun speech. But the people that have or the Top Gun movie, he's a little big Lincoln bobblehead as they fly by because they're on the USS... Abraham Lincoln. But the people that have those really strong feelings, I think, have a very narrow understanding of who he was. And that's what we're trying to... Can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. Top Gun. Top Gun. Maverick. Like the, the new one? Yeah, the new one. Or so, the old one? No, the new one. Because I've never seen either. Yeah. In the opening sequence, there's a little flyby, and you see the little Lincoln bobblehead uh -huh. shaking, and uh, it's because they're on the USS Abraham Lincoln. Ah, yeah, okay. And the Navy right. was so grateful to Top Gun, you know, for recruitment soared after the first Top Gun, so they're letting them film there right on the USS Abraham Lincoln. All right. Anyway, so everybody feels like they know him, but the people that feel most strongly know only a narrow piece of him, and that's what we're trying to fix today. So Peoria, he bursts on the scene. Most people agree that's his um, the first real significant great speech that he gives. And what he's, he's responding to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, so that has just gone into effect Stephen Douglas has suggested that we look at popular sovereignty as a way of deciding about slavery in the Kansas-Nebraska Territory, and it's really the first time we've done that. Prior to now, Congress has always legislated what's going to go on with slavery in the territories, beginning with the Northwest Ordinance. So at the beginning of this speech, he gives a little history lesson. Starts with the founding, says, 
when uh, the, con the Constitution was drawn up, we had exactly one territory where slavery didn't exist, and that was Northwest Territory. And so they create the Ordinance of 87 to say, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude can ever exist in the Northwest Territory. And that's going to, eventually there will be five states carved out of that, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan, um, right? Yeah. Michigan. Yeah, so they are taking a proactive stance immediately to say, because they've inherited a system, they're not really sure how to disentangle themselves from, and they're trying to corral it and keep it from spreading, because even though they can't figure out how to end it, they're at least trying to put some boundaries around it. They're going to legislate in the Mississippi Territory, the Louisiana Territory, there they don't get rid of it because it already exists okay. but they put borders all right it. so in this first speech so just i had to i had to actually look it up myself so peoria is i mean it's in the heart of what today we call the midwest it's mm -hmm. in the heart of illinois it's southwest of chicago but north of springfield which many people you know automatically connect as a you know lincoln place because mm -hmm. he lived there um galesburg is a little bit uh north of west and so this is an area that he's very very familiar with this is the cultural center of the white north in the 1850s and and so without getting into like too many details you know which can can kind of bog it down the speech itself is really about the expansion of slavery mm -hmm. and i think that's something that to your point people miss mm -hmm. They say he didn't care about slavery, he didn't care about black people. Well, those those two things are connected, mm -hmm. okay? And he is making a clear statement about the expansion of slavery. So he's offering a sort of vision of containment, right? Mm -hmm. A vision of containment. And the other thing, he has, a, I mean, he's obviously concerned about the enslaved, but he's also concerned about the poor white guy. So he says, slave states are a place for poor whites to remove from not to remove to and he said look at this area that has be that has become of the northwest territory we've got these five states now five million people living in a part of the country that never had to deal with slavery and we can give that to kansas and nebraska by simply removing slavery but we're not choosing that we're choosing this popular sovereignty which means they don't get they don't get this free country like we got okay you know? civics alert the kansas nebraska act uh -huh. so that everyone knows was a piece of legislation signed by the president, who at that time was Franklin Pierce, mm -hmm. and it essentially overturned 30 years of compromise through the Missouri Compromise, mm -hmm. which had limited slavery to south of, of a particular line. Mm -hmm. So this opens up slavery, which is why he is responding. And I think this aspect of the white population of the North, Lincoln's really one of the first people who makes an argument about the middle, what we today would call the middle class. Mm -hmm. he, he, is, he is making a, a clear statement about how the slave system and this free labor system are completely at odds, mm -hmm. and there isn't even a middle class in the South. He also, I think, he probably doesn't realize this, there's this common mantra in the South that white people couldn't work outside. Which is really interesting because if they had ever traveled through any of these states of the Midwest, they would have seen white people working outside all the time. I mean, including Lincoln. Lincoln. I mean, that's his story. Right. The old rail splitter, uh -huh. and you know, who knows how many rails he actually split. But yeah. I mean, 
he's I think he begins to expose the problem. So what what's where does the speech go from how he introduces it? What's So one of the justifications for this whole popular sovereignty model has been the sacred right of the individual. And so Lincoln makes this interesting. He does a little math equation. He says, okay, well, let's think about this for a minute. You tell me that I shouldn't really be concerned about what's going on in Nebraska if I don't live there. It doesn't affect me. Or does it? So he does a little comparison, South Carolina and Maine. He says, okay, let's just look at these two states. They have exactly the same number of senators, exactly the same number of congressmen, and yet Maine has more than twice as many voters as South Carolina. How does that work? And it's because of the enslaved in South Carolina. More than half of the people who live in that state are enslaved, and, we, and they get to count three-fifths of them as far as electing representatives. So he said, you got half as many people electing the same number of representatives, which really means that every guy in South Carolina is two of me and two of you and two of you and you and you. Well, not two of you because you didn't count. Well, I didn't count. All right. right. But if it's him, speaking of himself. Of right. So each, each guy in South Carolina gets two votes for every guy in Maine. And that's going to be true in, in Nebraska if they choose to be a slave state. And this is a great point, which shows Lincoln. I mean, first of all, he can just do basic math, mm -hmm. but he understands the problem that the three-fifths clause is, and it really isn't just a black problem. We hear today about, you know, how hideous and terrible the three-fifths, you know, clause or compromise in the Constitution is. And yes, it is. But it's not just about not counting black people as a whole person because they are enslaved or not, because mm -hmm. even in free states for national bad. representation. So anyways, what it does is it dilutes white voters. Mm -hmm. It's actually something that most people don't think about. It actually dilutes what white people could, how they were counted for representation. And Lincoln exposes this fallacy that a white man is not equal to a white man in the North is not equal to a white man in the South. And he has this incisive wit. And so he gets a little snarky about it. And he's pretty cute because he says, every time that their votes increase, I get my sacred rights get smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually you're going to have to have a guy come out with a, a microscope and start peeping around to try to find what's happened to my sacred rights. Right. Yeah. And this is so Lincoln, I think through Peoria, you start to see why he emerges as a threat. Mm -hmm. Also, Lincoln is incredibly sarcastic. We've talked many times. It's a shame we don't have audio. We don't mm -hmm. need video. Just the audio of his of his ability. He's actually in some ways like a, a like a, a comedian. Mm -hmm. Like a you know, Chris Rock is really good at just being incredibly sarcastic and funny, and Lincoln does this. And you see it later on in the debates. Like, he would make comments, and the crowd would be laughing. Oh, they're going crazy. And I, wouldn't you love to hear his delivery? Like, what did it sound like when it came out of his right. mouth? So so that's, that's his introduction. But mm -hmm. also, uh, at the same time, the Republican Party has been it's created. So he gives the Peoria speech in the fall of 54. Mm -hmm. And about six months earlier, a new political party was created out of disaffected Whigs, which mm -hmm. Lincoln had been a Whig, but also, uh, you know, pieces of other sort of uh, body politic fragments. Yeah. And yeah. so this new party emerges. And what are the Republicans? They are anti-slavery. That's their platform. Mm -hmm. So... Buchanan gets elected in 56. So mm -hmm. Pierce is a Northern Democrat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, Pierce is from New Hampshire. Like he's uh, extraordinarily Northern. Buchanan is from Pennsylvania, but they are 
completely locked in and beholden to the slaveholding South. So then Lincoln runs for a Senate seat Mm -hmm. three years uh, later. We talked a little bit, I think, yesterday about a speech he gives in Kalamazoo, Mm -hmm. Michigan, and he gives it for John C. Fremont, who's running for president, which is itself, he repeats some of the things about mathematics of the Mm -hmm. three-fifths clause, and and then he decides to run for a Senate seat in Illinois, Mm -hmm. and he and Douglas, although they gave a variety of speeches around the area, these debates really focus on a couple of major points. Mm -hmm. Expansion of slavery, but the other thing that they hit on, or that Lincoln hits on again and again, and he eventually gets Douglas backed into a corner, is their wrangling about the Declaration of Independence. They're really wrangling about the founding of the country and what does it mean and who is who is represented or intended to be represented within those words. So talk about the So debates. Lincoln says, um, you know, there have been, for years, you've had guys like John C. Calhoun who will say the founders said everybody was equal. They were just wrong. But within the last three years prior to their debates, he says there's been a whole reframing. And now we're not just saying that they were wrong. You're saying that they didn't mean what they said. You're saying that when they said all men are created equal, they really only meant all white men. So isn't that interesting? Because, you know, Calhoun, I think most people who work in this field know who Calhoun is. Today, there are people, and they have for a number of years, people on the, let's say, the left side of today's political spectrum, they make the same argument. Mm -hmm. And I've reminded them, well, then you're just saying exactly what John C. Calhoun did, who was the secessionist. This is what Confederates were saying. And both can't be true. And Lincoln is very adept at at being able to have two thoughts. Mm-hmm. He understands the nuances of human beings and the nuances of politics and that you can be an absolutist and you can just fail. So what does he do in the debates through this kind of tactic and approach that, that you find interesting? Well, so one thing I'm going to back up and get is part of the um, – at the beginning of these debates – Douglas is going to address something that Lincoln said when he accepted the Republican nomination. He gives a speech where he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I do not believe this nation can endure half slave and half free. I don't expect it to fall, but I do expect it to pick one or the other. It's going to have to be in concert. Douglas attacks this. He uh, suggests that Lincoln's trying to cause trouble and he's trying to stir up strife. And Lincoln says, when we have left slavery where it is, We've had peace. We only get in trouble when we try to take it to someplace new, Kansas, Nebraska, or the Mexican territory. That's where there's strife. And so if we're not causing strife, we're trying to stay where the founders placed slavery. And a term that he uses a lot is ultimate extinction. We want to put slavery where the founders placed it in the course of ultimate extinction. You do that by placing boundaries around it. I mean, he points to the fact that they didn't use the word slave in the Constitution, and that was on purpose because they were trying to leave a door open. They've been putting boundaries around it. And he says, we as the Republican Party are in concert with what the founders did. Another thing that he says is, uh, you know, Douglas is inflammatory, and he tries to get people revved up because then he doesn't have to say anything of substance. And he says, if we free all these black people, amalgamation is going to be an issue and, oh, and we're going to be intermarrying, yes. right? 
And, and Lincoln says, just because I don't want to make a slave of a black woman does not mean I necessarily want her as a wife. I've lived 50 years on the earth and I've never had a black woman for a slave or a wife. So you're making a, an argument that really is illogical. And so he hits him on one issue like this after another, trying to show that what the Republicans are doing is in concert with what the founders did. I think the idea that when Douglas you know, essentially accuses him of causing trouble, that's exactly what Lincoln was doing. Maybe not, he didn't sit around going, how can I cause trouble? But the very fabric of his language, what he is espousing is very problematic. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he does with Douglas, which it's fascinating to watch, well, you have to, of course, read the words. And sometimes, even as we're having this conversation, you know, I think our attention span is like this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what we see on Facebook, it's what we see on Twitter, it's a photograph we see on Instagram, it's a conversation, we're flipping channels. These guys had debates and they went on for hours. Hours. I mean, you watch a presidential debate today and it's like, give us a 30 second answer on North Korea. I mean, that's almost impossible. And what they're doing, Lincoln and Douglas, is they're having a conversation. Mm -hmm. They're certainly talking to the crowd, mm -hmm. but they're talking to a national audience. And the fact that these conversations are unfolding mm -hmm. in the heart of Illinois, which also is Douglas's home. Right. So, you know, these guys are duking it out, as I've said, like a couple of heavyweights in a ring, but they're talking to a bigger audience. They're oh, talking yeah. to people who aren't even in attendance. And what Lincoln does is he keeps maneuvering Douglas about the Declaration, and he finally gets Douglas to admit that the Declaration of Independence only applies to white Europeans. Read the words. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, for anybody listening, your homework assignment is you figure out which of the speeches he said that because you can, you can follow through because it's a, it's a process, speech mm -hmm. to speech. And he finally gets him to admit it's white Europeans and it's really stunning. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln at that point like goes for the kill because he has gotten the Northern Democrat to admit this, mm -hmm. which is what Southern Democrats have been arguing oh, for wow. years. Yeah. And he inflicts a mortal wound. Mm -hmm. And that is where I think, even though Lincoln loses that election, he wins the popular vote. Right. Um, but he, the way the districts are arranged, it's a little bit like the Electoral College, yeah. and he loses, but he wins. The Republican Party wins. Mm -hmm. And you see the Democrats, especially Southern Democrats, start to lose their mind mm -hmm. because they thought they would have to deal with an abolitionist. They mm -hmm. defeated, you know, Fremont, who was much more of a vocal, right. um, you know, abolitionist stance than Lincoln. And and that's where the debates, to me, are so incredibly fascinating. Yeah, because you have they both know they're speaking to a national audience, and they are both already thinking about 1860. They both are are imagining themselves as, as presidential candidates. And you have those stenographers. I mean, they're taking notes as fast as they can. Uh, the Associated Press is brand new, and so you get those on the telegraph wires, and they're everywhere. Every, everybody's reading their words by the next day or two. And Lincoln is a more palatable um, candidate than Fremont ever was. And Frederick Douglass says something about him toward the end of his life. Last speech Lincoln gives, of course, he, he begins to talk about voting rights for black men. And he says, at least among the very intelligent or those who have fought for us. And 
Douglas says, leave it to Lincoln to take the slow road. He learned diplomacy out on the prairie splitting rails, and he always starts with the sharp end or the narrow end of the wedge first. But if he uses the wedge at all, you know the rest is coming. Mm -hmm. And they're seeing this. They're seeing a man who is pragmatic enough to take the next right step and a step after that. And so those who would say Lincoln didn't ask act fast enough or he didn't go hard enough he's seen what that was like well, Fremont would have been that man and they didn't want that and I think that's a great point because in 1854 55 57 1860 you couldn't act too quickly mm -hmm. because the bulk of even the white north isn't really sure what direction they want this to go. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of apathy. You can see it in how the crowd responds to what Douglas is saying. Mm -hmm. There's certainly lots of white people in Illinois who don't care one bit about black people. They mm -hmm. don't care about slavery. That's why they were Democrats. Mm -hmm. You know, they were supporting basically the party that supported slavery. And, and Lincoln and the Republicans are making a different approach. But one of my favorite speeches from that period is mm -hmm. not one of the debates. So they agreed to engage one another, but they were also giving their own individual stump speeches around All the state. Over, yeah. So I'm, I was looking for this earlier, and it's um, a speech that Lincoln gave on, of all days, September 11th, mm -hmm. 1858. And he is speaking in Edwardsville, Illinois. And for anyone who would question his commitment um, to standing against the expansion of slavery, which is itself a stand against slavery, but understanding the moral dilemma mm -hmm. of enslaving an entire race of people and being perfectly okay with it. Let, let's remind everyone, this wasn't illegal slavery. This was not just legal slavery. This was as they argued, constitutionally sanctioned slavery and furthermore, biblically ordained. This is what black people should be forever and ever. And Lincoln just thinks it's wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just wrong. And he says in Edwardsville, when by all these means you have succeeded in dehumanizing the Negro, when you have put him down and made it forever impossible for him to be but as the beasts of the field, when you have extinguished his soul, that's a that's an evangelical mm. statement itself from someone who's not terribly religious. When you have extinguished his soul and placed him where the ray of hope is blown out in darkness like that which broods over the spirits of the damned, now he's invoking hell, are you quite sure the demon which you have roused will not turn and rend you? You know, he is, he is making a clear statement that what is being done to this group of people is essentially, not essentially, it is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And you are creating a hellish environment where if you don't watch yourself, they will turn on you and they will kill you. Which is in diametric opposition to what Jefferson Davis says, which is, we brought the Negro here and gave them the light of Christianity. Right. So he's saying they're better off in this situation, and Lincoln's saying, uh-uh. And, and today, I know some who are talking, they, they in fact, one I know very well, uh, talking about the ill effects of Christian nationalism. Davis is knee-deep in mm -hmm. the good book, mm -hmm. but only the pieces that he wants. Lincoln isn't making even an argument about the Bible 
or scripture, Lincoln is just simply saying there's a right, there's a wrong, mm-hmm. and this is wrong. Mm-hmm. What is being done when you talk about dehumanizing, when you talk about extinguishing their soul, that that right there is is a direct statement of the humanity of this race. So right. Douglas goes off to be a U.S. senator. Mm-hmm. You reminded me, you know, these two guys end up running against one another for president in 1860. Mm -hmm. But before that, and just before Lincoln gets the big nod from the party, he goes to the Cooper Union Mm -hmm. um, in New York, and he gives a speech to, really, uh, it's a friendly crowd. These are... It's a friendly crowd, but boy, it's a a complete... It's a far cry from the folks he's been speaking to in Illinois, because this is a very sophisticated, well-educated audience. And he's going to reframe his approach a little, not what he says. These are the Republican leaders. These are some of the, what we would might call big donors today. These are the people who want to hear what the, the tall lawyer from Illinois has to say. So we've only got a few minutes, so let's condense the Cooper Union address to what's his main thrust. He revisits some of the topics he talked about in Peoria, but he goes into de- de- deeper detail. He's got, done a great deal of research about those guys that passed the Constitution. He said the 39 men that framed the Constitution, did they take action on this whole idea of expansion? And he ultimately discovers 23 of them had to address some sort of legislation about slavery in the territories of those 23, 21 affirmed that Congress could make that. So that's one of the points he's making uh, he says, look at Washington, for example. He passed that same legislation. He sends a letter to the Marquis de Lafayette saying he envisions a world where slavery doesn't exist. And he says, we're stuck with it where, where it exists today. It's up to the states to end it. Let me just interject yeah. a mathematical equation. Okay. 39. Mm-hmm. He comes up with 23 and 21 make a clear statement. That's a majority. Mm-hmm. That's a majority. And even the two that don't act on it, we just we don't know whether they disagreed with right. the legislation itself or they're a. But twenty one out of thirty nine is twenty one to eighteen. Mm-hmm. That's a majority. Right. That's that's a straight majority. The other thing is, he says those who are arguing that the Congress can't control it point to two, uh, two of the amendments. They're not even the Constitution itself. It's the the amendments. The fifth that guarantees property. The tenth that says the state controls whatever the federal government hasn't legislated. And he said those amendments were passed by the same Congress that passed the Northwest Ordinance. So you want consistency? Here's consistency. Mm-hmm. And what you're asking for is completely inconsistent, inconsistent. And governing yourself, that's self-government. But when you govern somebody else, that's despotism. That's like the divine right of kings. We left that. And right. now you're, that's what you're asking for. So, so in conclusion... A couple of quick points. So he, um, of course, is elected, uh-huh. and he makes a point in his first inaugural where he addresses the issue of despotism, mm-hmm. and he said that you know the minority must be project protected um, from the majority. However, minority rule is inadmissible, and he makes a majority conclusion about the expansion of slavery. He has won the election. Mm-hmm. And he talks about minority rule flies to despotism. It's inadmissible. Mm-hmm. His sometimes practicality mm-hmm. is 
very, very revealing. I mean, there's no doubt people like John C. Calhoun and Jefferson Davis were brilliant men and honest and committed to what they believed, but so was Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that has always puzzled me is the people who will sling arrows at him and say things about him and about his stance and about what his party felt. Mm -hmm. To say Lincoln didn't care about slavery is really just an insult to the entire Republican Party because they were an anti-slavery party. Last thing, Corwin Amendment. This is a little treat for uh, those of you who are into this sort of stuff. So people will talk about, well, Lincoln supported the Corwin Amendment. Well, the Corwin Amendment was an amendment that never um, took effect because there weren't enough states to ratify it, but it would have protected slavery where it existed. And people will say, well, you see, Lincoln didn't care about slavery because he would have supported the Corwin Amendment. Well, here's a news flash for you. Do some mathematics. There was no way that you were going to get the three quarters of the states left in the union to ratify that amendment. Okay, so Lincoln saying that he supported it, he knew it would fail. So he's doing what a politician does. But he, there's one other thing. You know who knew the Corwin Amendment was a bunch of rubbish? Jeff Davis. Jefferson Davis. And Jefferson Davis said that the Corwin Amendment was irrelevant. By the way, Corwin's from Ohio. Mm -hmm. Jeff Davis said that the Corwin Amendment was irrelevant, and why? Because it doesn't address the territories. It doesn't address the... It's really the, redundant, it because all it says is the federal government can't end it, but it's always, always been ended by states anyway, that's so right. that doesn't change it. It doesn't address the expansion of slavery and whether Congress has the authority, which Lincoln admitted the Constitution doesn't expressly say so, mm -hmm. but there is a history... Mm -hmm. 75 years of mm -hmm. Congress legislating on this very thing, mm -hmm. which from a legal perspective is called mm -hmm. precedent, yeah. okay? And he's a lawyer first and a politician second. And, you know, the other side just didn't think um, that that was so. Mm -hmm. And they were so committed to protect slavery and ultimately to expand it by the time Lincoln was inaugurated, seven states wow. had tried to break away. So that is, um, I think, where we should probably end it. We have um, a couple of other interesting episodes. I think we're going to do one of them, actually, is about the founders and people like Jefferson and what they thought on the issue, not only of race, but of slavery and what the future might hold. And this is the future, of course, that people like Lincoln live in. So um, thanks for listening. Um, stay Subscribe, like, watch, spread it around. This has been, um, we've gotten a lot of great commentary. Um, and so I think it's working. Um, we wanted to give this a spin. We've got probably another four or five or six episodes, but um, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening.